Good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Drew Moss. I work with, uh, I work at the Table Campus Ministry alongside of Randy and Alex Sheets, and uh, we are a college ministry that is supported by Sunnybrook and partners with Sunnybrook in reaching and discipling students at OSU. Today, I get the privilege of sharing with you from Revelation 3, the text we just read. Uh, if you haven't already turned there, you can go ahead and, and open up your Bibles to that place. We'll also have the text on the screen as you're going there. Can I tell you what I hate most about this day? about Halloween. It's not uh, having to come up with costumes for our family, even though that is something that annoys me every year, trying to come up with something for our kids to wear, and it seems like we always kind of forget about it until the last minute, and so uh, we're left like scrambling to pull stuff out of our closet or borrow things to kind of piece something together. My wife, Amy, always makes it happen, though. She always gets it done, and so that's not that big of a deal. Um, it's not trudging around on especially cold Halloween nights behind my children as they trick-or-treat walking through the neighborhood. If anybody knows me, they know how much I hate being cold, but I'm okay with that because my kids really enjoy it and because I eat their Halloween candy after they go to sleep. And so it's kind of a fair trade for me. I can handle that. No, what I hate most about Halloween is that every year around this time, there is this whole new batch of scary movies that come out. And, and, and they're almost unavoidable. As I go, uh, as I'm on the internet, like seems like every ad is for a new horror movie that is coming out around this time. Or on Netflix, there's always kind of that special featured section at the top that you gotta scroll past with all these creepy images on it. Or, or I can even just be sitting and watching like a, a harmless, like a football game on the TV with my kids and then some really creepy trailer comes on. I've gotta make them all turn their eyes away so they don't have nightmares at night. And and I've got to turn away so that I don't have nightmares that night. I hate scary movies. Hate them with a passion, and I don't mind admitting it. I'm, I'm a wuss when it comes to like horror movies. I, I just can't do them. There's some people who really, really like scary movies, who like watching horror movies. Some of you are in this room right now, and you really get into those things. Can I just tell you that as your brother in Christ, I love you, but I think you're sick, okay? I don't get why anyone would ever want to like sit and just subject themselves to terror for an hour and a half, right? And, and to pay to do that, right? Movie tickets aren't cheap. Who's like, yeah, I'll pay 10 bucks to not be able to sleep tonight? Like that's, that's, never, that's never appealed to me. I, I've really, like I avoid scary movies at whatever cost. I think I've seen two, maybe three horror movies in my entire life. Um, and, and it's been a long time. Like the last one I saw, I think, was uh, The Others, this movie with Nicole Kidman. My brother was like, you got to see this. It's really awesome. Uh, that was like two decades ago. I made it like 30 minutes into it and was like, nope, can't do this. Sorry. Uh, I, I hate scary movies, and therefore I avoid them like the plague. Whatever I can do to not see them, I stay away from them at all costs. Uh, there are a number of people who take a very similar approach to the book of Revelation. Uh, I wouldn't say they hate it, uh, of course, but there are a lot of people who, who something about this book just makes them a little bit nervous. 
makes them a little bit uneasy. And so they tend to, there are a lot, I believe, who tend to just avoid revelation altogether. Uh, maybe they're intimidated just by the, the kind of the idea of being able to get their minds around it. And I've never been able to understand that stuff and I don't know what to do with it. Or, or maybe they're legitimately a little bit fearful of some of the imagery in there. There's some kind of scary stuff in here. Dragons with seven heads and beasts coming out of the earth and beasts coming out of the sea to devour. And, and, and there's some people who honestly it's the themes in there of judgment and wrath and the end of the world, and I just prefer not to think about that kind of stuff, and so they just kind of stay away. Now, the, the kind of the irony is that, honestly, uh, rightly understood, I believe Revelation is designed to do a lot of the opposite of that, to actually bring encouragement to those who are following Jesus, to give hope even when it feels like there's not hope, but I get it. I, I get what makes people uneasy about the book of Revelation and why some people may feel like they want to avoid it. But can I tell you something? For my money, the scariest things in Revelation are not the parts that I struggle to understand. It's the stuff that I can understand pretty easily. The scarier parts in Revelation are not those violent, graphic, mysterious images. It's actually some of the simple, straightforward statements made, especially towards the beginning of the letter. Statements like this one in our text today from Jesus to the church in Sardis. I know your works, that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. That's the kind of statement. That scares me. Sardis was a city about 40 miles south of Thyatira, the city we read about last week. It was a city that by the time Revelation was written, it had been in existence for at least like 800 years, seven, 800 years. And it sat at this crossroads of two, two, three major trade routes that kind of came in and out of the region. It was also sat in a very uh, easily defendable position which made this, uh, along with some of the natural resources, gold that was discovered in that area, made this a very important city for a very long time. A number of different empires that came and went during, uh, in this portion of the world, Sardis played a fairly big role in. It was a city with a reputation for wealth and prestige. But... By the time John is writing this book, Revelation, uh, it was a city that was a bit on the decline. I mean, it was, it was still doing pretty well, honestly. It wasn't like in the dumps or anything, but, but its glory years were behind it. And it was largely still kind of living on that past reputation more than on its present circumstances. Well, in the middle of this city sits a church that in a lot of ways reflected the city it was a part of. It was a church that appeared to be thriving. And at one point, it truly was. It was the kind of church that you would look at and go, now that is a church. There is some really cool things going on there. They are doing well. And apparently, it was a church where they thought the same of themselves. But Jesus, however, is not. His words in our text, verse 1, says, Write to the angel of the church in Sardis, Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. 
Jesus introduces himself as the one with the seven spirits and with the seven stars. The seven spirits there, when we see that, is just a reference to the Holy Spirit. And in the book of Revelation, that that number seven is a big one. It means completeness or perfection or fullness. And so Jesus is simply saying that he is the one who possesses the Holy Spirit in all its fullness. And then he says that I hold the seven stars. In in chapter 1, we're told that the seven stars represent the seven angels of these churches or the seven representatives. So essentially, Jesus is saying, I am the one who holds the seven churches. And the one who holds the churches knows the churches. And he sees what others do not see. And this is what is scary to me about this statement. Because what it reveals is this, that it is possible To be the kind of church that others look at and go, wow, that's a good church. That's a solid church. Have you seen how many people show up there on a Sunday? Have you seen their buildings and and they just keep expanding? They're clearly growing. Oh, have you ever been in one of their worship services? They are so moving. They are so powerful. And there are a million programs. They're doing so many things for all ages and in the community and all kinds of things. It's possible to be a church like that and to look alive, but to be spiritually dead. And what is true for churches as a whole, I believe, is also true of individuals, that it's possible to be the kind of person who is spiritually impressive when people look at you because of your vast knowledge of the scriptures or because of your faithful attendance and involvement in church because of your Christian busyness constantly serving and volunteering and doing good things it's possible to have all of that and to still have a heart that is far from Jesus to deceive others whether unintentionally or intentionally and even to be somewhat deceived yourself Hear me, none of those things that I mentioned, big numbers in a Sunday service, buildings, or, or in person, knowing the scriptures, or being involved in church, none of those are bad things. Those are good things. Those are things that we, we love to see happen, and they might be signs of legitimate health, but that doesn't mean that they're a guarantee of it. They are external pointers, and those pointers might be pointing to an inward reality, but they might not. I don't know what it was about Sardis that gave it its very good and lofty reputation. But there was something in it that was not right. And Jesus sees it. So what is that? We don't know exactly, but we're given a few hints in the following verses. If you want to read verses 2 through 4 with me, Jesus says to them, Be alert and strengthen what remains which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. First thing to notice here is that even though Jesus has referred to this church as dead, he does not mean that they are completely gone that there's no hope for them because he says strengthen what remains which is about to die they're not completely gone yet to quote Max the miracle worker from the princess bride they're only mostly dead 
That they're in this sort of comatose state, and there are a few different indicators of this. Jesus says to them that I have not found your works to be complete before my God. This idea of complete, it means to be full or to be finished or to be followed through, kind of, uh, yeah, seen through all the way. So the idea that we get is that this is a church that perhaps started strong and it was zealous and, and faithful in doing these things, but slowly over time they had begun to fizzle out. He talks about that there are some there who have not defiled their clothes, meaning that many of them had. And in the book of Revelation, to walk with pure, white, undefiled clothes means that you are not uh, taking on the impurities of the culture around yourself. And, And so that appears to be what's happening in Sardis, that they are little by little looking more and more like the world around them, that they're taking part in perhaps some of the pagan idolatrous practices, even if they're not really buying into the idolatry, but, but there's a lot of those practices that were just a part of the culture, and it was just kind of what you did, and so the temptation was to just kind of go along with those things. Jesus also says towards the end of this little letter to them that he, he, he says, blessed is the one who overcomes or who conquers. And that, that is a big theme in Revelation. To conquer or overcome means that you do not cave or compromise under pressure or with persecution around you. And so it appears that this is what was happening in the church there. Now, we don't get any indication of like really strong persecution against this church. Not that it's not there, but we don't see like in in Philadelphia where Antipas has actually recently been put to death or in Smyrna where they're under affliction and poverty. We don't see those things. But Jim likes to kind of remind us when we read through Revelation that the greater threat to the churches is not physical persecution, even though that's there, even though that is a threat to them. The greater threat is cultural seduction is to be lured into doing the things that everyone else around you is doing. There also doesn't seem to be any sort of charge of heresy. We don't hear any words about false teaching, about the Nicolaitans, or about following the teachings of Balaam or of Jezebel like we see in some of the other churches. No, what appears to be taking place in Sardis is more of a spiritual lethargy that was settling in on them. That they had started strong, but over time, even though they were still there, even though they were still doing things, even though they were still meeting together, that they had begun to slowly, subtly blend with the world around them. They were no longer sticking out. They were no longer witnesses to those around them. Instead, they were comfortable. And so Jesus comes to them with this command, with this warning, be alert, And he says to them this morning at the end of three, if you are not alert, I will come like a thief and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. So the command Jesus gives to them is this, be alert, pay attention, wake up. More literally, the word is like be watchful and it's in this continuous sense of be constantly watchful, be continually watchful and vigilant for the things around you. Now, that kind of command and the warning that Jesus gives along with it, that that would have struck a chord with this church. That would have struck a chord with all Sardians because of their city's history. 
As I mentioned earlier to you, this was a city that was uh, easily defendable, and that's because of the position that it sat in. It, it sat out on this acropolis that was jutting out from some nearby mountains. The main portion of the city did at least, like the key portion, sat on this acropolis, and it had sheer cliffs leading up to it on three different sides. So you could only access the city, you could only approach it on one side, which made it easy to defend. And in fact, uh, Sardis in its history had never once been conquered by an outright military assault. But that doesn't mean that it had never been conquered. Uh, in the 6th century BC, the King Cretius, who was known for his great wealth, actually some consider him to be the wealthiest king at the time, and much of his wealth was kept safe there in Sardis. Sardis was the capital of his kingdom, the Lydian kingdom. And he reigned there in the middle of Sardis, and then in 546 BC, the Persian army, in the middle of beginning to expand their empire under King Cyrus, the Persian army came to Sardis to try to take it, and of course they couldn't. There's no way to get to it, and so what they ended up doing was laying siege around the city. And as the story goes, one day on the backside of the city, one of the Sardinian soldiers was up there along the walls, and as he peered over, his helmet fell off. And so he went to go retrieve it. What he did is he went down this little staircase on the inside of the walls, and then down to a secret exit that came down at the base of the walls into the cliff there, opened that up, retrieved his helmet, and went back up. What he did not know is that one of the Persian soldiers saw him, and therefore saw this secret access point into the town. And so what the Persians did soon after is they gathered all their forces on the front side of the city to gain the attentions of the Sardines. And so that's where they put all their forces and where all they focused. And then that night, as the city slept, one of a special force unit from the Persian army slipped through that secret exit into the city, taking it and opening the gates for the army to come in. And... Crazily enough, almost the exact same thing happened 300 years later when the Greek Empire came through under Antiochus III. They conquered the army in, or the city in much the same way. And so twice in its history, this city had fallen because of a failure to stay alert because of a failure to be watchful. And now this church is in danger of the very same thing. And so Jesus says to them, wake up, be alert. Now this is a very fitting command, obviously, for the church there in Sardis because of their condition, but also because of the background of their city. But the truth is they are not the only church in the New Testament to receive this warning. Actually, throughout the New Testament, this command is given time and time again to different Christians in different places. One of the most famous ones comes in 1 Peter 5, 8. You'll probably recognize this. This verse says this, Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. 
Jesus uses this phrasing a lot when he talks to his disciples about always being watchful and being ready. He says, they ought to be living like servants whose master has gone away on a trip. And when that master returns, you want to make sure that he sees you on alert, actively doing the things that you're supposed to be doing. He says something like this in Luke 12, verse 37, blessed will be those servants that the master finds alert when he comes. The writer of Hebrews says something similar to a church that is kind of waning in their faith, and he calls them to be attentive so that they do not fall away. He says to them, for this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. Paul will give similar commands to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Thessalonica, to the church uh, in Colossae, and he gives a very similar command in 1 Timothy 4 to his protege, Timothy. But it's not just them. He, he talks this way about himself. In the passage we heard Randy read from 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, I'm not casual about my life and about my faith. I take this seriously and I run with a laser focus on the prize that is set in front of me. He says, so I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. This warning is given over and over again in the New Testament to mature believers and to immature believers, to unhealthy churches and to healthy churches. Uh, it is kind of something you see, this theme, that an essential component of the Christian life, we might summarize with these two words, faithful vigilance, an attentive watchfulness, a continual watching your life, watching your heart, paying attention to the things that are going around you to make sure that you stay strong, to make sure that you continue in the path that Jesus has called you to. Why? Why does the New Testament bring this up so often to so many different Christians? Why is this such a big deal for us? There's one scholar who, in his writing on Revelation 3, uh, says it's because we as Christians are always on the brink. In fact, he, he, he writes a sermon that's called On the Brink about this that I read, and it's, it's all about this idea that Christians are always kind of on the edge of falling away into temptation, falling away from Jesus into these other things, and so we need to be aware because we are living on the brink. I, I don't know that I buy that. As I read through the scriptures, I, I don't see this idea, this call for anxiety or panic because we might fall away at any moment. No, there seems to be a pretty strong, uh, a pretty strong statement that God is faithful in allowing us to continue and will help us as we walk, that we don't have to live. We live in alertness, not anxiety. But there's something here. I think the reason that Christians are called uh, to, to faithful vigilance over and over again is simply because of this, because following Jesus is hard. Because it's not easy. He told us this much, that it's not easy to die to ourselves, that it's not easy to love him and pursue him above all else because we are following him. And as we do that in this world, we are swimming against the current of this world. And there are a thousand little temptations for us as we swim against this current to sometimes just let go 
and to drift, to go with the flow as the world pushes against us. And the New Testament also makes this clear that as we seek to follow Jesus and as we go against the current of the world, that we do not do that unopposed. That we have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to destroy our faith. And sometimes he does that through all-out assault, but often he is just as happy to lull us to sleep, to let us become lazy and even apathetic towards the things of God. There's a lot of talk today about deconversion stories, people who walk away from the faith or even deconstruct their faith and those kinds of things, and that is something that I think we ought to be concerned about. But can I tell you that I don't think that's our biggest danger as a church. For most of us, the greater danger is not that we will abandon our faith. It's that we will grow unattentive to it and let the flame die out. For many of us, the greater temptation is not that we will one day up and just walk away from Jesus, but that over the course of many days, we will slowly stop walking. Or that maybe we'll keep walking, but kind of in an adapted way that allows us to kind of have Jesus and have the world at the same time. That allows us, you know, to still be Christian, but not to look all that Christian, to be able to fit in with those that are around us. That is the greater temptation, and that is a temptation that has plagued the church from its very beginning. It is one that consistently weakens the body of Christ, and it kills our witness that we are meant to have in this world. About a year ago, I sat in the kitchen of a friend of mine, an unbeliever, and we were just having a conversation uh, about faith and about what I believe and about what he believes. And, and the conversation at one point turned to the idea of resurrection. And I asked him this question. If it could be proven to you, like beyond the shadow of a doubt, if you saw and you knew that Jesus Christ had actually physically resurrected from the dead, would that would that change it for you? Would, you? would you believe? Would you become a Christian in that moment? And his answer sort of surprised me. He said, no. No, it wouldn't because it doesn't change anything. I said, what? What do you mean it doesn't change anything? He said, it doesn't change anything, at least not for the Christians I know. So the Christians that I know, that I hang out with, they believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but they're no different than any of the rest of us. And as we talked, I began to kind of parse out a little bit of what he meant by that. He began to explain more and more that the Christians that I hang out with, that they love or don't love just as much as anybody else, that, that they live and die on politics just like the rest of us, that they joke the same way that all the rest of us do. And so the resurrection has made no difference for them. So even if it was true, it doesn't seem like it would make a difference for me. Now hear me, I, I disagree with my friend. I believe that the resurrection does make a difference. I have seen the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit at work in people. I have seen that make a difference. But I believe my friend's point still stands that there are many Christians who who maybe at one point it did make a difference, but they have fallen asleep. 
Or maybe they never knew him, that they have begun in many ways to look just like everyone else around them, except for this thing, that they go to church on Sundays. But other than that, there is no difference between them and the rest of the world, and that is a tragedy. That is danger to our church. You know what's so dangerous, I think, about about complacency and about compromise is that by their very nature, they don't actually feel that serious, right? Because a person who is growing complacent or a person who is growing apathetic or compromising doesn't feel like anything really bad is happening. You know, I'm not committing adultery, right? I'm not stealing from people. I'm, I'm not abandoning my faith. I still believe in Jesus, and I'm, I'm still, you know, going to church most of the time. But apathy, complacency, is a serious thing to be indifferent about the things of Jesus, to be indifferent about his kingdom and his mission, to be complacent in my pursuit of Christ because in reality I'm more interested in the things of the world than in the things of him. That is a serious and dangerous thing, and Jesus calls it a serious and dangerous thing. Did you catch what he said to this church? If you will not be alert and aware and on guard against the things of this world, then you better be alert and aware because not only will they be your enemy, but I will be your enemy. I will come to you, Jesus says, in judgment. He takes this seriously. So what do we do when we realize that that might be us? Or maybe not that that's us, but that when we recognize a temptation or a propensity in ourselves towards that to coast spiritually or more likely to drift from what Jesus has called us to, from the life that he has given to us, I want to stop here for just a second and clarify. I want to clarify because I think there is a difference between what we might call spiritual lethargy and what we might call spiritual fatigue. There's a difference between not caring and not feeling it. There will always be days, I think, when we don't uh, feel it as much as we might want to in our Christian walk with Jesus. There will be days when, for whatever reason, we're just less excited in our Christian life. There will be days when we feel perhaps like we're not connecting uh, in church when the sermon is preached or that we're not connecting in the word or, or there will be times when it just feels like more of a struggle to do the right thing and to continue to believe. And those things I think are maybe not ideal. That may not be where we want to stay, but they're normal. And it's probably unhealthy to constantly be evaluating myself and asking, am I feeling excited enough today? Am I feeling joyful enough today? Am I really as passionate as I need to be? I think that there's something about that that can cause undue anxiety. And again, the call is not to anxiety. It is, called to, it is a call to alertness. But there is a line somewhere. There is a line that I can cross when it's not just that I'm not feeling it. It's that I don't care when my effort towards Christ begins to wane when I begin to neglect the very resources that God has given me to aid me in these things things like his word things like fellowship with my brothers and sisters things like prayer when when I begin to notice that obedience and personal holiness are not so much a priority for me anymore 
as the things that I care most about match up more with the world than they do with Jesus. If you're in here and, and maybe as you read some of these words to the church in Sardis and, and something in you starts to kind of grow a little nervous, there, there's a decent chance that for many of you, you may fit in that first category of simply spiritual fatigue. And, and if that's you, as you think through those things, it's, it's good to know, hey, be alert, be vigilant, but don't be panicked. Don't be worried. Don't be overly fearful because God is faithful and helps us through these things but there also may be some in here that as you examine yourself you recognize that this is something that has been true of you for some time you realize I have been indifferent towards spiritual things that I have conformed in a lot of ways with the world around me and that has been a pattern in my life for a while if that's you if you felt maybe that you've been in this, or maybe you haven't been in this, but you feel in yourself a recent tendency towards those things, and the call for you today from Revelation 3 is to repent. Repent of complacency, to feel convicted over those things and to feel burdened, but I also want you to know that you should not feel hopeless, that you should not feel overwhelmed or that you're doomed to stay in that position forever because the same Jesus that holds the church in his hands, the same Jesus that knows our hearts and know our, knows our deeds, that same Jesus, verse 1 tells us, holds the seven spirits in his hand. That same Jesus comes to us with the Holy Spirit in all his fullness. And the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible specializes in bringing life where there were once dead things. That's what he does. It's what he did for us at the beginning, and that's what he can do for us again. And so, yes, we want to respond. We want to do what Jesus has called us to, namely what he calls us to in verse 3. He says to them, uh, remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. So remember what we do when we feel ourselves waning, what we do when we feel ourselves growing lazy or growing apathetic towards the things of Jesus is we remember what we have received and heard. We look back. We look back to the gospel. We look back to the very truths that gave us life in the first place. We remind ourselves of the one who loved us while we were his enemies, who died for us when we did not deserve it, who rescued us out of darkness. We remember what he has done for us. We remember who he is for us, both our Savior and our King, and then we repent and we respond to those truths in loving obedience. But we don't just look back. We also look forward we live our lives, we commit to living our lives with faithful vigilance, knowing that one day our king who sees, who knows us, will return. And when he does, every sacrifice that we have made, every act of obedience, no matter how difficult, every bit of effort we put forward, even when we didn't feel like it, will be worth it. Jesus tells us this much in verse 5 of our text. This is what he says, in the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has ears to hear, listen 
to what the Spirit says to the churches. Every week, it's our practice to have a time of corporate prayer together where we lift up a specific request or idea or something that is going on in the world around us or within our church. Our staff, as we were talking, thought that it would be fitting today to have that time right now to give us a few minutes to reflect and to examine ourselves, to, to pray this prayer from Psalm 139, Lord, search me and know my heart. And to ask ourselves and ask him, how much of this might be true in my own life? My own propensity towards complacency. How much I can get caught in trying to just kind of blend and go with the flow of the world. To ask God to reveal that to us. And then where we see that to be true, to spend some time confessing that before him. Asking for him to help us. And I would suggest, by the way, that if, if this is true of you, and again, many of us may be experiencing fatigue more than lethargy, and, 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 and if so, what we do is we ask God to strengthen us. We ask for his spirit to fill us with power to help us be vigilant and alert. But if we find that this is true of us, it's good not just to confess this to him, but to confess this to a brother or sister. Say, I need help. I need you to walk alongside of me, but we want to give you a couple minutes to pray through those for yourself or maybe for others that you know, for brothers or sisters who are waning, who are drifting, who are struggling, and to lift them before God. And then after a couple minutes, I will lead us in praying this prayer over us. So take a moment to pray now.